Hey, I'm O'Shea Reset, and this is the Sideline Guys Podcast. For the final time in 2021, we welcome you into the Sideline Guys, powered by Gamebridge. As always, I'm alongside Jeremiah Johnson. This week we have Pacers radio play-by-play announcer Mark Boyle joining us. We're going to take a look at where the Pacers currently stand, go back and look at the entire year of 2021, some of the standout moments, and then close out this show looking forward. Mark is with us now, and as we are speaking now, Mark, the Pacers are coming off a couple, a tough couple of games in a month of December where um, it really seemed like there was an opportunity to gain some ground, and unfortunately it doesn't look like the Pacers are going to do so. They're 5-7, and seven, uh, still one more game in it on New Year's Eve against Chicago. I know you and I had talked on the pregame show a couple of times that this was a potential month of opportunity. Um, why do you feel like the Pacers weren't able to take advantage as the schedule suggested they might be able to? I think the same issues that have been there most of the season, and they can be encapsulated on a general level by just saying inconsistency. They just haven't been able to play well for extended stretches of time. They've had segments in games or even a game or two in a row where they've done some nice things and had some good results, but the consistency hasn't been there. Uh, and then within that, the three-point shooting has become an issue over the last month or so. Uh, that's been a problem. Uh, the inability to close games has been an issue. That's been there all season long. I just don't see consistency, and that's one of the things you have to have if you're going to take advantage of what did appear to be a favorable schedule, that six-game homestand. Uh, Those weren't easy opponents necessarily, but you were at home, and they have played pretty well at home lately, so that was something that we all looked forward to, and then they split those six games. The consistency just hasn't been there, and I think that, although it's a bit general, is, is probably the answer to your question. Well, and I'm going to follow that up with something that I think we've talked about maybe every single week on this show, and I know we've talked about it on the radio broadcast as well, something that's really puzzling about this year, and perhaps it means that somebody like me has overrated these stats, but a couple of things that I kind of look at in general are team net rating and then point differential, and what's puzzling about those two statistics for the Pacers is even after these two straight losses that Indiana has dealt with, The Pacers have a positive point differential, so they've lost seven more games than they've won, uh, yet they've scored more overall than their opponent has on the season when you add it all up. And when you look at net rating, the Pacers are 15th in the NBA. When you look at point differential, they're seventh in the East. And I think had we said the Pacers are seventh in the East at this point, um, you would have said, well, you'd like to be in the top six, but that doesn't necessarily feel out of place. A lot of that has to do with their struggles to close lately. Um, uh, but in, in general, what do you make of, I guess, the disparity between those couple of statistics and where the Pacers stand from a record standpoint? I think you hit it right there. Their inability to close uh, before, and I don't have the updated numbers in front of me, but going into the game on Wednesday, they had more losses by three or more points than any team in the league. They just can't win these close games. Now, Uh, The NBA is a league of parity, so almost all of these games are getting decided in the fourth quarter, and many of them in the final two, three, four minutes. So if you can't close, you have issues. And I think what you're talking about there, that net rating, that point differential illustrates that. It does suggest that they should have a better record, but when you can't close, when you can't win close games, 
the vast majority of games in this league are close games. So when you can't do that, you have a very real problem. And so far, they haven't been able to do it. Uh, they did win a game the other night where they were trailing after three quarters, and that was the first time they'd done that. So that's a positive step. But in general, that's been a glaring weakness, the inability to close games. And what you're talking about, that uh, net rating and that point differential illustrates that. One of the things that Rick Carlisle has mentioned time and time again this season is he feels it's important to get off to good starts. And I remember hearing that a few times thinking, well, you know, we so often in the NBA, we see a team fall behind by 10 points and come back. But you mentioned just one win when trailing after three quarters. The Pacers have yet to win a game this season when trailing at halftime. And so that's another one of these statistical anomalies where much like the you know, point differential would seem to point that the Pacers would have a better record. It almost seems through 35 games uh, impossible that you would be never win a game when trailing at halftime. How concerning is that? Well, it's very concerning. They're the only team that hasn't won a game when trailing at halftime. And I don't know the answer to this, but it's perplexing to me. And these statistics might be updated because the Pacers have played since I last looked at them. But um, as far as being recent and topical, I, I think this is on point. Uh, going into the last game, the Charlotte game, they were the best offensive or the best scoring team in the league or the best shooting team in the league in the first half and the worst in the second half. How can that be with the same group of guys? It's baffling to me. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's obviously a huge problem. Now, how you solve that problem, I have no idea. Why it's a problem, I have no idea. It's perplexing. There shouldn't be such a big gap between the first and the second halves, but there is. Uh, if you're good enough to be the best team in the league in the first half, how can you be the worst team in the league in the second half? That just baffles me. I've never really seen anything like it. But uh, you're, you're not four games into the season, so it's not just a poor start or circumstantial or coincidental. It's, it's a long enough run where it's, it's baffling to me, but it's real, and I don't know what you do about it because I don't know why it's the case. You know, on this podcast, we tend to look at the glasses half full and, and try to see the optimistic viewpoint. And I know through 15 to 20 games, I told Pat that, you know, normally that's when people say you look at the standings through 20 games. And this is kind of this is a good view of who might be the playoff contenders. And I said for the Pacers with the injuries and everything they dealt with, you're going to really need to wait until the end of December. Well, now it is the end of December and their position and place in the standings is, is pretty much the same. And I guess I want to get a thought from you, Mark, on the depth, because every team is dealing with shorthanded rosters. Many teams, knock on wood, are having a much more difficult issue with health and safety protocols and COVID losses than the Pacers are. However, this, this thought that a guy like TJ Warren maybe has more value than we ever realized, because later in this podcast, we're going to look at this entire year and, and think of some of the moments that, that stood out. And it's going to be the entire year of 2021 that we did not see TJ Warren play basketball. And if you can make a case, there's really no one like him on this roster. There's no one able to be a wing scorer, wing defender to the level that TJ Warren is. You have Justin Holiday, but he's one of these versatile guys that can do whatever is asked of him. But to be a, a lockdown wing defender, and I'm not saying TJ Warren is Paul George, but he has that in his skill set and to be able to go get a basket, maybe uh, TJ Warren does that as much as anybody. So maybe is that loss as significant as anything? And then without having him and then adding in 
you know, every game, at least someone else is out. So you've either got Karis LeVert out for a chunk of this past year. You've got Malcolm Brogdon missing time. So without some key scorers like that, it does seem like guys that are normally coming off the bench go into the starting lineup. And it's just a trickle-down effect that seems to be affecting this team. And so then maybe at some point in the second half of these games, guys are wearing out a little bit. That's the only thing I can come up with. Uh, fatigue sets in. I'm not sure when some of these second half woes continue. Phasers Radio play-by-play announcer Mark Boyle is with us. We wanted to take a good portion of this show and look back at the calendar year of 2021. And I say that, and I'm going to then immediately break this rule here right off the bat. But the way last season started, it was December 23rd, only a week away from 2021. So I want to kind of lump that in. Um, This is year 34 for you. I guess first and foremost, probably pretty safe to say that 2020 and then uh, maybe followed up by 2021 are the two weirdest years as a broadcaster with the Pacers? As a human, no. I mean, yeah. we're all impacted by this. It's, it's not just broadcasters. It's not just players and coaches. I remember right before the pandemic hit, and now we're going back a little further than you wanted to, but I want to I put this into context to a degree. We were on the road somewhere. I forgot where it was. And Joe Smith, our security guy, this was about a month before COVID hit. He was telling us uh, the league's looking at uh, putting – Limits on how many fans can come into the building. This is getting to be serious. Well, we hadn't been impacted by it at all. And I remember thinking, eh, well, maybe, but that seems a little alarmist to me. And now, if anything, uh, he was understating the case. And we've all gone through it. We're closing in on two years now since the pandemic uh, shut the NBA down. And so the whole journey has been so weird. We all went through a year last year. And this is Uh, to answer your question about how it impacts us as broadcasters, we all went through a year last year where we never even met the coach. He lasted one year and then he was fired. We talked to him on the phone a few times, uh, but we never met him in person. And, you know, before COVID hit, could you visualize a day that you'd be involved with the team and be there more or less on a day-to-day basis and never meet the coach? Well, that's just one thing. And then, you know, doing games remotely uh, and trying to establish relationships with, uh, people that we couldn't actually meet in person. Uh, and and, and in, in the big picture, these are minor issues. They affect us as broadcasters. Other people have lost their jobs and lost friends and family members. And I'm not trying to say this is catastrophic, but from the perspective that you reference, how it affects us as broadcasters, Pat, there's no question that it's just been extremely bizarre and continues to be so. Our, our broadcasts are like an iceberg. What people hear or see uh, is the part that's above the ro- water, which is a small part of the iceberg. The rest of it's below the water. Nobody ever sees it. And to take that analogy a step further, I'm talking about the behind-the-scenes people. In our case, Greg and Emily and many, many others who are too numerous to name, television the same. These people do such a spectacular job. I've talked to some of my peers with other teams, and I'm sure you guys have too. Uh, they've had issues we've never had. So while it's difficult, uh, it's less difficult than it could be because of the great help and support we get from these people who never get enough credit. Uh, and I just wanted to say that publicly because I don't think we do it often enough. But uh, the answer to your question is is this. I miss it. There are things about it I don't miss. I, You know, like uh, if the Pacers play in Philadelphia and we're doing a remote broadcast, I kind of like being home at 1030. Uh, <laughs> I don't miss checking into hotels at three in the morning. I don't miss getting up at six to prepare for a game after we did check into that hotel at three. These are not real world world problems. These are our problems uh, as members of a traveling party. Uh, Those things I don't miss. But, you know, as good as these behind the scenes people are, 
there are things we just can't see uh, when we're doing a game remotely. Oftentimes, we don't know who's checking into a game. We're not sure who the foul is on. If there's something going on off camera, we don't know about it. Nobody's fault. That's just the limitations that we deal with. And so I miss all of that. I miss the feel of the crowd when we're on the road. Uh, I miss being able to talk to the people from the other team uh, when we're not on the road, the broadcasters, the writers, the assistant coaches. I've been around long enough that, uh, and uh, Jeremiah has too by now. We know people on every team now. And so it's valuable to talk to them and, and get their insight, even if we might not use it on the broadcast. It helps us understand the big picture and relate the story as it unfolds. So yes, I miss it, uh, but I'm still at the point where I, I, I'm not tired of being home at 10.30, or for that matter, when the Pacers go on the coast uh, in January, we'll, we still won't be traveling. Uh, and when we leave that, first of all, it's weird to leave the field house at 1.30 when there's nobody there. <laughs> uh, but still, I'm home at two o'clock uh, and, and I'm in bed by, well, I'm a vampire, I'm in bed by six. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Uh, those are I, I kind of like that aspect of it, but in general, it's difficult. And I and I I want to go back to what I said at the beginning, Pat. I cannot overstate the importance of these behind-the-scenes people who I think, and I know Jeremiah will echo this. They just do a marvelous job, and we're lucky to have them. Yeah, one of the things, Pat, that uh, I do miss as well is meeting some of the behind-the-scenes people in the other arenas because we develop a relationship with those over the years because so many of the crew members, when we go to Orlando or we go to Detroit, we see some familiar faces, and so now we do not see them. But um, the glass-half-full side of that is we're seeing our people every single game, and so it's been good to have um, you know some of our friendly faces that we see now, not just for home games but for road games. They're with us in the studio, and they're doing – such an outstanding job. And they are a part of the entire team. As, as Mark mentioned, it's the people that you see on the air that you know, but um, it's a cast of, of, you know, maybe up to a hundred on any given night when you, you include, uh, you know, the radio and the TV side of things and really everything that makes a broadcast go. So um, it, it's been challenging. It's been, uh, you know, rewarding to still see the product get on the air um, and, and to be able to do our jobs. But I will say that, I don't have the same enthusiasm, enthusiasm is probably the wrong word. Maybe it's optimism right now. When I go in to do a game at Gamebridge Fieldhouse when the Patriots are on the road, only because road games this season have not been great games from a baser's perspective. And so, um, you know, a lot of times our post-game show, uh, whether it's a good show or not, I know I listen to sometimes what Mark has to say after games, and he has a great ability to, uh, you know, make it entertaining, even if, uh, the game wasn't so entertaining. Many of his conversations with Eddie White get off topic enough that I, I find that uh, worth listening to, even if the Pacers have a poor performance. But for the 30 minutes after the game ends and Eddie and I are breaking down highlights and and, and reactions and, and commenting on the post-game Zoom conferences, if the Pacers lose or it's a bad, you know, bad game, it's not a great post-game TV show. So right now, for whatever reason, when I do a game in the studio, I just I kind of don't have a great feeling about it. When I do a game in person, and I'll even reference the, the Hornets game. I mean, it was a loss, but there was a vibe in the building. There was an energy. And I think you just miss that kind of from start to finish. On a night when the pregame show starts and, and the doors are open and, and fans are coming in. And, and now with our set in the concourse, uh, being able to interact even, you know, on a more personal level with many fans that kind of want to come by. They want to just kind of see and catch a glimpse of what we're doing. I think that's been fun this season as the construction has moved our set. Um, the in, it makes you appreciate, I think, the vibe and the energy in an NBA arena 
And I can't wait till we are able to do it again. But again, I understand and realize, and I've, I've never lost sight of this. And I feel fortunate because I know some guys do. I've never lost sight of how lucky we are to have these jobs. I've never lost sight of we are in the vast minority of people that get up every morning looking forward to going to work. So our problems are very minuscule on the big picture type scale. Oh, I can't do it as well from that studio as I can from an arena. Well, it's frustrating, but hey, Mark, take a step back and realize you could have a real job. I've never had a real job, and I always try to remember that. At this point, uh, Pat, I think we wanted to try to go through the year a little bit. We don't have a lot of time to really break down, you know, that many individual moments. But if, if you go back to January, uh, the first thing that stood out to me was what I already mentioned. TJ Warren was injured and not available. But then it was the middle of the month and it was something that we would have experienced a lot different if we were on the road. Because I think if I remember right, uh, the Pacers were in Portland and, and news started to get out of a trade. And I've thought about this in the last week, Pat, that uh, – Victor Oladipo, it seems like it was two or three years since he was with the Patriots. Does it not? Is it? Could it just be January when that trade happened? And, and that was, uh, you know, franchise changing, I think, because he was someone that was injured, but also was trying to come back and still someone that so many people at the Fieldhouse wore his jersey. And for him to get traded, I think it affected a lot of fans. And then you see Karis LeVert come in and he's someone that brought a lot of promise and a lot of hope. And then he would go on to have um, the medical condition that was very serious that he had to overcome. That was probably the the most memorable, at least the long longest lasting moment from the month of January. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also agree with, uh, I think some of this is pandemic related. I think some of this is the Pacers have just had so many switches and eras, whether it's been um, from a coaching perspective or, you know, uh, Victor Oladipo was here for a couple of years, Paul George before that. Now this kind of feels like a different era. It, to me, definitely feels like longer than what is not even a year um, since Victor Oladipo has been with the Pacers. But I think that trade um, was really significant because it was another example of, and Mark, we'll get your thoughts here. Um, this is a couple of trades now that Kevin Pritchard has been able to pull off where you kind of feel like your back's against the wall and maybe not as much as the Paul George trade, certainly. Um, but you're in a position where uh, you're not, you've not been put in a good spot as it relates to Oladipo. And you're able to come away with uh, a very quality player, somebody who obviously went through his own medical challenges right when he arrived with the Pacers. But um, you know, we're seeing him play some of the best he's played as a Pacer here lately your thoughts, Mark, on the trade that, uh, you know, it was it was much bigger than these two guys. It was James Harden and um, a major trade that kind of sparked this. But the Pacers ability um, to turn another tough situation uh, positively with Karis LeVert. Well, it's uh, it's the second time that Kevin has done that. And I know it's difficult. It's difficult to make a good trade anyway. But when you're backed into a corner, I remember when they made that trade with OC when they uh, traded uh, George over there and got Oladipo and Sabonis. I said at the time, given the circumstances, that's a pretty good trade. And now as time has evolved, you can remove the given the circumstances. That's a good trade, period. And then the same thing to a lesser degree with Oladipo. It was, it was clear that you were going to have to move him. And so you were at a disadvantage and, and Kevin got Levert for him. So what you ended up doing was, uh, in essence, uh, 
you traded Paul George for DeMontis Sabonis and Karis LeVert. And while Paul George is, I think we would all agree, probably a better player than either of them, getting two good players for one guy that doesn't want to be here is, is pretty astute and a job well done by Kevin Pritchard under difficult circumstances. Now, uh, as you point out, LeVert has had a, a number of, of issues that he's had to overcome. Uh, notably that surgery last year, and uh, now as he comes back from the back injury, he's been healthy for a while, uh, and he's starting, it seems to me, uh, to round back into the type of, of player that we had expected, and he's going to be one of your more impactful players as the season wears along. So uh, difficult circumstances, the George trade isn't in this calendar year, so I'm a little off topic, but it's it's worth mentioning because it's under similar circumstances. You had a guy that you were going to clearly have to move because he wasn't all in, and so you're at a disadvantage, and I, I think Kevin Pritchard did a really good job in both of those situations. You know, there are, are moments um, that when they happen, they tend to stick with you, and I know this one certainly applies for you, and I almost don't want to ask a specific question here because I just want you to kind of take it wherever you want to go, but um, 2021, in a lot of ways, um, will be, I think, for many Pacers fans, um, remembered by the Hall of Famer Slick Leonard's passing. You obviously were very close with him, both from a professional perspective and a personal one. Um, I guess now that you've had maybe eight months or so to look back on all of that, what would you like to share about the life and the remarkable legacy of Slick? Well, I don't think I can really add anything that hasn't already been said. His significance has been well-documented if anything, underestimated. I said this before. Uh, we all know the significance that Slick and Nancy have had in terms of this franchise and the impact and the telethon and all of the things that have gone into making this franchise what it is today. Their impact cannot be overstated. But I still say this, and I don't know if I'm in the minority on this or not, and this is not personal. I, I think it's an observation based on logic. Uh, but you could still debate it. And I say this, Pat and Jeremiah, not only are Slick and Nancy so significant in terms of their impact on our franchise, I still think you could make the case that without Slick and Nancy, uh, this would be not a ghost town. That's obviously overstating the case. But I don't think it's out of line to suggest that had they not been able to save the franchise uh, and bridge the gap between difficult times and the Simons finally taking over in the early 80s, Maybe there's no Colts, so maybe there's no Lucas Oil Stadium. Maybe there's no uh, Conseco slash Banker's Life slash Gainbridge Fieldhouse. Maybe none of that happens, and without that, maybe downtown doesn't evolve. Uh, you guys are from here, and, and so Jeremiah, I think, will be able to relate to this, but you might not because you weren't born yet. When I came here in 1988, Pat, downtown was like, uh, what? There's nothing down here. It shuts down at 10 o'clock. There was a big hole where the mall is now. Uh, and it was just, uh, you talk to guys who come in with other teams. This was a place uh, in terms of hitting the road uh, where guys said, oh, Indianapolis, nah, we'll come there and we'll leave and then we'll go to some other cool city. Now it's a, it's a destination. People with the other teams like coming here. Downtown is vibrant. And it's not just because of Slick and Nancy, but their impact is, I think, significant in that regard. Now, on a personal level, I met Slick when I came here. I knew who he was but I didn't know him. And in those days he was doing television 
And it wasn't like now where every game's on TV. There were, I think, maybe 20 games out of 82. So we didn't see him all that often. Uh, but he was always accommodating. I, I didn't know the NBA when I got here, and he went out of his way. He was always available if I wanted to ask questions. Uh, and then we became closer, and as time evolved, he became my partner. Uh, and so it was a great run for me. And I said this when we uh, met for his private ceremony, and I'll, I'll say it again uh, publicly. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but uh, he and I had worked together like in the playoffs. And then uh, after the Pacers made their first significant playoff run with Larry Brown in 94, uh, we were together for the whole playoffs. And then they decided, what if we made Slick your permanent partner? Well, I was on board with it because who wouldn't be? Plus, I loved the guy by then. But I, I'm embarrassed to admit now that I thought, you know, I, I, I was here. I don't know what that was. Uh, I came in 88. This was 94. So that's six, seven years, whatever it was. And I, I felt like I'd established myself to a degree, but I was still young and, and still fuller of myself than I am now. And I thought, man, is this guy going to cramp my style? Am I going to have to carry him? I laugh when I say that now because it turns out he carried me the whole time. But uh, I was worried that his inclusion in the broadcasts would minimize my impact. That's how I thought in those days. Uh, but we became great friends. And one of the highlights now at home games for me is Nancy's there every night. She sits behind the bench. Uh, and if she gets there early enough, I'm able to go over there and say hi. Uh, and she's doing very well, by the way. I talked to her before the Charlotte game on Wednesday. Uh, and she said she's she's starting to re uh, is recover the right word. The grieving process is is so difficult and so different for everybody. And she's still grieving, but she said she's doing better. She's got a great support system here. Her kids and her grandkids are all here. She told me they're having, they, they haven't been able to have Christmas yet because everyone can't get together. They're having it next month. And the reason they had to pick a, pick a specific date is because there's 26 people coming to Christmas with kids and grandkids. And so she's got a great support staff. She's doing well. And seeing her always reminds me of Slick. And the, you know what? The other thing I said, and I, I hope this doesn't sound uh, crass or uh, insensitive, but I did say this uh, when we eulogized Slick uh, shortly after his passing in that private ceremony. You know, we were all sad and we were all grieving and we were all heartbroken and we still are. But I, I said this at the time, and it's, it, to me, it remains true these many months later. If you said to me, hey, Mark, you're going to live to be 88 and you can spend every day right up until the end doing what you love even though you have health issues and then after you contribute to a broadcast you're going to go to sleep and not wake up you're going to pass in your sleep sign me up for that right now uh, i don't mean to be insensitive but that seems to me like the way to go slick always had great style and that, that's like just a great way to pass if there is a great way to pass but I think about him every day and his impact on me professionally and personally is so profound. I sometimes think I can't do it justice by putting it into words, but I just did it for like five minutes. And I hope uh, no one thinks it's a waste of time because I still feel like I don't do the man justice when I talk about him. Well, Mark, you did a great job there. And one of the things you did a great job uh, in the difficult moments after were, um, you know, the things that you said, I think everyone wanted to hear your perspective. And um, yeah, I think that, one of the things that I think has been really uh, heartwarming to think about is the, the tributes that Slick was able to receive while he was still alive. So many times someone passes away and you have these memorial services and you think, oh, I wish so-and-so would have known what people felt about it. Well, we had the oh. documentary and that event at the Fieldhouse so and then the Hall of Fame. And there were a number of things that I'm glad took place 
while he was alive. So he, there had to be no doubt what he, that he knows what everyone in this state felt about him. And, and he understands what you said there about the city and whether, you know, the Colts would be here, all of those things with Slick and Nancy. I think that he, he had to be aware of that. And so that's one of the rare things that he was able to have this, you know, I would say the last maybe 10 years of his life, there was at least something every year where we paid tribute to Slick. And I think that has to make everyone feel a little soft spot in their heart. How many people do you know uh, that you can say, this guy is a part of me? He's a part, he's not here anymore, but he, he's a part of you. He's a part of me. He's a part of Pat. He touches or touched everybody that he met. And I'm glad you mentioned that about the, uh, the testimonials. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, you know, because at the end, Slick didn't get around very well. So he rarely left the broadcast location, which is, as you know, well above courtside. So if you wanted to see him, you had to go up there. And I still remember when the Lakers came in uh, and Frank Vogel, who uh, Frank and, and his wife are very close with Slick and Nancy. Uh, they became great friends when Frank was here first as an assistant and then the head coach. Frank went out of his way. How many NBA coaches would do this? And this tells you a little bit about Frank and a, and a little bit about Slick. Uh, he was downstairs and he asked Eddie White if Slick was there. And Eddie said, yeah. And he said, I need to see him. This was after the doors had opened. There were people in the stands, and Frank went up through the crowd, uh, you know, and came and sat with us. I know you remember it, Pat. Yeah. Um, how many NBA coaches would do that? that that's that's uh, that's who Frank is. So I'm not surprised. But the point I'm making is what Jeremiah just said. How many guys would generate that kind of emotion, that kind of feeling, that kind of allegiance? Uh, you know, slips a part of Frank too, uh, and so. Whenever I talk about Slick, I'm glad to do it. I could talk about him for hours. But sometimes I wonder uh, when I say these things, if, if I really am doing a good job getting the message across of just how important he is to all of us. I don't think it needs to be said, really, because everyone who has had any kind of contact with him understands it. But, man, I, I, that will never go away. Uh, if I'm still around when I'm 88, and that would mean he, he passed several decades ago, it will still be the same for me. That's how much of an impact he's had on me. Well, we appreciate, as always, your perspective on Slick, and I wish we had more time for it here on this show. But the good news is um, we have a couple of shows for those listening who perhaps want to hear Mark talk more at length. Mark joined us uh, for a podcast, if you search Pacer Sound, um, to talk about Slick after his passing. And then also during uh, the hiatus in the shutdown of the pandemic, we had a weekly conversation with Slick, um, a podcast that's also available as Mark just really uh, chronicled Slick's life from, uh, you know, back in his days as a kid growing up in Terre Haute um, all the way through, you know, finishing as a broadcaster with the Pacers. And I think um, both of those, if you want to hear a little bit more about the life of Slick and some of Mark's thoughts um, and, and some of his perspective on Slick would be great options for those listening. Again, you can just search Pacers Sound um, wherever you get your podcasts or just search it. In Google, as we have a, a few more minutes here, I, I want to continue looking back at 2021. And, you know, you could make a case this was perhaps the biggest highlight for the Pacers in 2021. Happens over the summer. Rick Carlisle's return to Indianapolis. What were your initial thoughts when you heard the news, especially as somebody that um, has known this guy, that he was going to return to Indiana? Well, that was an interesting time because uh, it, to me, it's, it's a, it's a two-step process. Uh, Kevin Pritchard went outside the box to hire Nate Bjorkman. And sometimes when you do something and it becomes a signature move, which that was for him, it's difficult to admit that it's not working, but he did that after one year and he pulled the plug 
And so you don't have a coach. Now, I don't know what on what went on behind the scenes. Maybe there were discussions uh, with Rick previous to that because uh, he decided not to go back to Dallas. But whatever the sequence of events was, uh, when he made that move, it was genius because coaches like that just don't become available. This guy's a proven winner. He's won a championship. He's acknowledged as one of the best at what he does. He's been here before, so he's familiar with some of the people uh, that he'd need to work with in, in management and ownership. So a really good move that will have an influence, not just this season, but for, I think, many seasons to come. And another, I think, important offseason move, the draft. And I think the Pacers, when they have the selection of 13 overall, it's a pick they really need to hit. And I think, you know, fans were probably as interested in the draft this season as any in recent memory because of that, the 13th pick. And so you had people projecting who might fall and, and who might the Pacers select. And Chris Duarte was obviously the selection. And I think I want to combine moments of the year to the draft and the first game against Charlotte, Pat, because getting Chris Duarte was someone that I think people were uh, admittedly mixed emotions. There were some players that fell. They didn't know if this 24-year-old from Oregon would be uh, the perfect fit. And then to see him have that debut against Charlotte, it was a loss. And I think that's that'd be always the, the yeah, but I think that goes along with so many stories from 2021. Uh, but to see that selection, to hear so many teams were interested in, in getting Chris Duarte, to get him at 13 and to see him burst onto the scene and get to know him a little bit this season, I think does stand out to me, Pat, as a, a moment to remember and, and to hopefully something we'll look back on positively in years to come. I remember when we were doing the podcast right after the draft, there being a lot of frustration with the fan base on the pick. Duarte uh, was the oldest first round pick since 2002. And I think uh, there were a lot of people that wanted the Pacers to go with a 19 year old, a one and done type who maybe had uh, a really high ceiling. And I think that first game, well, to be honest, he probably did this in the preseason, although those games don't count and you have to take them oftentimes with a grain of salt. I think the moment that he took the floor, fans started to realize that this was going to be a good pick. How good? Uh, still to be determined. He's had a really impressive rookie season. Um, you know, in terms of being ready and NBA ready at 24, he's certainly been that. Rick Carlisle uh, started him day one and for the most part has had him in the starting five, occasionally coming off the bench as the sixth man. Um, but, you know, when you think about some of the other guys drafted around there, I remember um, Moses Moody, for example, being a guy that uh, a lot of Pacers fans wanted. Look, he might turn into a very good pro, but especially for where the Pacers are in their current timeline, I think that's been, you know, obviously a tremendous pick. And it's kind of been interesting to watch his rookie season develop because, uh, you know, he came out of the gates tremendous and then he hit kind of a period in there where he went through. I don't know if you want to call it the rookie wall. He was dealing with a shoulder injury. Um, coincidentally or not, it kind of came, I noted, around um, the point in terms of game played where he was getting around the total that he had played at Oregon each of the last two years, which is in the upper 20s. Uh, but lately he's had, a, you know, a pretty good stretch you're off of that of, of three or four games. So you obviously never know what you have on draft night, but I think it's also worth noting that the Pacers are almost never drafting in the top 10, and yet they've done um, a pretty good job when they're in that 10 to 15 range. Think Chris Duarte, think Miles Turner, think Paul George, um, and this looks like another one of those hits, and, and an important one too because you're coming off a year where you missed the playoffs, so you do have a better opportunity to get a franchise impacting player at 
13 than you did in those previous years where you're drafting in the high teens and the low 20s, and it certainly seems like the Pacers hit. It's a good pick. I think everybody would agree with that. Now, it remains to be seen how good. Worst case scenario to me with this guy is this. He's a decent player that contributes on a good team for several years. That's worst case scenario. He's already demonstrated that he's an NBA caliber player. He is older, so he may not evolve in a dramatic manner that a 19-year-old would. His game probably is as close to finished as any rookie in the league, but as he gains more experience, uh, he'll figure out the nuances of the game and he'll become better just because of that. Uh, He's a really solid guy. And when you take a 24-year-old guy in the first round, you know that you expect him to play right away. It's not the same as drafting a 19-year-old. And I'm always, you know, Jeremiah mentioned this, uh, that the fans were upset. And I, I have a different perspective on that because I literally, and I think I'm unusual in this, I literally do not watch college ball. I do my homework on these guys. I know what they've accomplished, but that still is meaningless to me because you can be a great college player, but your game doesn't transition to the NBA. So I wasn't disappointed or elated. I just didn't know what this guy did or who he was. But you could see right away, when even, even in the practices before the season, he played with a level of confidence very uncommon for a rookie. And so maybe you say, well, he's 24 years old. Yes, he is, but he's still a rookie, and he's still playing at the highest level for the first time. And to be confident, you know, you referenced that first game against Charlotte when he scored the 27 points. That wasn't what impressed me, although that was impressive. Remember, that game was decided down the stretch, and he was fearless. He was taking shots in the clutch. He wasn't afraid of the ball. He played like a veteran, and he's been that way from the beginning. So this, to me, at 13, is a really good choice. And, 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 you know, you mentioned something about the Pacers never get high picks, and that's testament to how competitive this franchise has been. They're never bad. The last time they had a top 10 pick was George McLeod back when, you know, when the Flintstones were still around. And, and that's, uh, that's over 30 years ago. So they don't get a you look at some of these rosters. They got two guys who were the number one pick over here. They got five guys that were picked in the top ten over there. The Pacers don't have that because they're never bad enough to get it. So it's incumbent on them to make good choices when they have the opportunity. And have they failed? Of course they have. Everybody fails. Everyone makes a choice that in retrospect looks like it's a bad choice. I'm not suggesting they're flawless. But as Pat pointed out, they've had pretty good luck drafting in that 10 to 15 range with some of the guys they've been able to select. On the Bally Sports Twitter account, uh, they unveiled a top five moments or uh, moments to remember in 2021. And one of those near the top of the list was the play-in win against the Hornets. I kind of have mixed emotions on that night because, uh, for one, you look back at the stats and it doesn't even count in terms of NBA record keeping. I heard people referencing that the Hornets have now beaten the Pacers five straight games, but uh, the the play-in game doesn't count. Uh, The other thing was it was a a playoff light game, but limited capacity. So it didn't have that same vibe and energy. And then it was followed up with a loss to the Wizards. That being said, it was probably the best game and moment from that season from a Pacers perspective. I wanted to know your thoughts, though, Mark, about the play in tournament, because now instead of looking at records and standings with the top eight in mind, if you're below the top 10, you're still thinking, well, can you get to 10th? Do you like the play-in tournament? Do you think it's here to stay? What are your thoughts on that? I think for sure it's here to stay. Uh, and I have i wouldn't say I've transitioned, but I'm coming around a little bit. When it was first introduced, I hated it because I think it cheapens the regular season. I can, I can spend six months grabbing one of those top eight spots, and then in three days I lose my spot 
because somebody who shouldn't have been there based on previous norms has knocked me out. I'm still not a fan of that, but I've come around to the extent that I don't hate it anymore. I understand why they did it. And I think it's good for the game. So I've come around a bit on it. I still think it cheapens the regular season. And so for that reason, I'm not a huge fan of it. And I'll tell you the one thing that they're talking about that I will hate until I die, even worse than I hate the replay system, this mid-season tournament they're talking about, they can take that and stash that somewhere and let's never talk about that again. That makes that to me makes our sport seem more like a carnival than a serious venture, and I'm totally against it. Do you, do you so guys you're gonna like let, it? Are you going to let Pat call those games if it happens next season? Well, I don't like exhibition games either, but I do those, so no. I, oh, okay. <laughs> you, you have to show up for work on days that maybe you'd rather not. So, yes, I will be there, Duly but done. I just think it's a horrifying idea, especially for a, for a sport that's it, it's, it's, it's at its apex in terms of popularity, at least relative, you know, attendance is down because of COVID and all of that. But I, I think we would all agree it's the second most popular sport in the United States behind football, right? It's, it's gone way past baseball. Hockey is uh, still sort of not a cult sport, but it's, it's never going to gain the popularity in the United States that it does in Canada. Great sport and everything. But the NBA is very popular. I don't think we need gimmicks to make it more popular. And uh, every time I hear them talk about this, and I, I have no doubt that it's going to become a reality. Uh, there's money involved. It's uh, intriguing for many fans. And so I get why they're talking about it. But, man, I hate the idea. Well, it's too bad that we're running out of time here because I think this would make a good segment on things that you really don't want to see happen in the future. Uh, Pat, Pat, we have we have a lot of season left, so I think there may be some opportunities. Uh, yeah, let's let's devote a whole show to uh, sometime down the road, maybe after the All Star break, I'll come back on and we can talk about the replay system and the mid season tournament. Let's do that and kick that kid off your lawn while you're at it. Hey, I don't He's already off my lawn. I'm just making sure nobody else thinks about getting on my lawn. <laughs> well, while we have a moment here, let's uh, let's kind of wrap up this show. And I'll ask you this just kind of vaguely as we turn to 2022 here. Uh, what are you most looking forward to seeing, whether it's, you know, a, a closer return back to normal or perhaps we even feel like we hit that point in 2022, whether it's a Pacers perspective? Um, is there anything that stands out to you as the calendar turns that you hope maybe if we're having this show a year from now that we're discussing? Well, on a general level, I think we would all agree that we hope the Pacers win with more frequency. But beyond that, you hit it. I, I, I'm hoping that at some point, whatever normal is now, I'm hoping we get closer to that. I think our league has done well and our franchise also in navigating what is a very difficult and unprecedented path. Uh, but I think we're all tired of navigating that path. And I would like to think that sometime, hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, this isn't going away anytime soon. I'm not that naive, but I'm hoping that we can get back to a place where things are more or less normal. That's what I'm looking forward to. And then secondary to that, I would like to see the Pacers win with more frequency because uh, it benefits everybody. It's it's good for the city. People get engaged. It's obviously good for the players and coaches. It's great for the franchise. And so I would like to see that happen as well. Pat, Mark, my wish is maybe for a little more joy and a little bit less angst because, uh, to, to Mark's point, it's not just the wins um, with more frequency. I think that would take care of it. But, uh, you know, I mentioned that I do kind of try to pay attention to what fans are thinking. And I felt like there was a good joy in the building. Uh, the Charlotte game, obviously, uh, it, the first half was not good and the result was not necessarily good. But, you know, sometimes on social media, I think fans can just get so frustrated 
plays, possessions, games, and uh, hopefully there's a little bit less angst and a little more happiness. And you know what will happen have to happen to have that happiness is obviously have some more success. So it was an uneven year. There were disappointing things that happened. The the one loss record from Jan one to December thirty first of twenty twenty one is nothing that will be uh, you know fantastic in years to come. But uh, hopefully things can start to turn around and then there can be just a little more. A little more glass half full in 2022. 98% full, Jeremiah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Jeremiah, as always, it's a pleasure to work with you here on the podcast, and we appreciate, uh, Mark, you joining us here. And um, we wish everybody listening a very safe, a very healthy 2022. We look forward to seeing you very soon at GameBridge Fieldhouse. This is the Sideline Guys, powered by GameBridge.